This is Our American Stories, and those are two sounds that we love here, the sound of great gospel music. And if you remember where and when this song was used best in a movie, well, it's Secretariat. And Secretariat came to us as a shining example of aristocracy, big, handsome, full of charge. He walked with style, stood tall, and displayed the best manners on paper. He wasn't perfect, losing five of his 21 races, as if to say... I'm only human. But to the eye, he was perfection itself, and when he performed, he took our breath away. Yet some may ask, how could he have been voted 35th among the 20th century's 50 greatest athletes? Furthermore, how could a horse place a close second behind Wilt Chamberlain's unimaginable 100-point game on ESPN's Who's Number One list of greatest sports performances by an individual athlete? And the answer? Because he was secretariat, more than just a horse. He had a kind of a princely quality about him, physically, mentally, he had the temperament, he had the physique, he had the heart. He had brilliant speed, great stamina. The girths which are made by saddlers wouldn't fit him. They had special ones made to go under that big belly. It is said by experts that he was the perfect horse in measurement. You could look at Secretary and you knew that he was something special. In addition to being an extraordinarily uh, good runner, uh, there was a very imperious uh, look to him. It had a big flashing copper coat on him, and when the sun's rays hit him, it was a beautiful thing to see. It was the way God intended to, uh, to make a horse. You can't anticipate greatness. You can't really define it, I suppose. It's something that, that, that God, every once in a while, sticks in somebody. And, uh, and because it comes from God, um, the gift can't be ignored. And it can't be defeated. And the great athletes use it, even if they're not human. So true. And despite the universal praise ultimately lavished on this horse in a million, his career began without fanfare on July 4, 1972, as his trainer... Lucien Lorraine looked on from the owner's box. He made his debut as a two-year-old at Aqueduct. And unfortunately, he had some trouble in the starting game, got banged around. The rider did a terrible job. Had him been in trouble the whole way. I mean, he was, you know, never had a chance to run, and everybody saw it. On the outside, it's Quebec 6th, followed by Fleet and Royal 7th. Version is 8th. Jacques Coup on the inside 9th. Secretariat is 10th. Lucian got up and he kicked the chair across the box and he said, damn, that horse should never be beaten. 
And that's when I knew that Lucian thought we had a really good horse. Secretariat's chief problem in his life was he was handled by people. Had he been handled by someone other than flawed human beings, he would have been undefeated. After finishing fourth in his all-too-human debut, Secretariat won his next two races, the second under a new jockey, Ron Turcott. But it wasn't until the Sanford Stakes in Saratoga Springs, New York, when the horse that would capture America's heart gave us just a glimpse into the future. Here's Secretariat's jockey. I was sitting behind two horses. I started to make my move because it was an opening, and when them two horses come back together, they just ricocheted off him. And it's just like nothing happened. He went on and won by himself. That was the beginning where he really impressed me. Ronnie Turcott wins it aboard Secretariat, under the wire, the winner by three lengths. He separated himself uh, from the rest of the crop pretty effectively, especially his races at Saratoga that summer. By the time that he approached his third start, then it was happening. I mean, then there was a lot being said in this red horse that Lucian Lauren has, and uh, it could be something special. You know, it could be. In the middle of the racetrack, Secretariat with a rush moving to the leaders. They come now to the top of the stretch. Sunny South has the lead by a neck. Here comes Secretariat on the outside, rushing to contention. When Secretariat made his move in the hopeful, it was unlike any move that I'd ever seen a two-year-old make. It was uh, the kind of a move that you just t- it takes your breath away, that you could hear the collective gasp from the entire Saratoga grandstand. It was just like, wow, did you see that? They straighten away in the stretch and Secretariat takes the lead by two lengths. He circled the entire field in 22 and one for a quarter, going around the turn about eight wide. And you don't see any horse, let alone two-year-old do that. Physically, he was mature beyond his years. He was clearly the dominant two-year-old in America. There was a sustained interest in Secretariat, and he was anticipated to uh, as a, a real triple crown potential horse uh, right along. For a two-year-old to become horse of the year, he can't just be a very good two-year-old. He has to break the mold. He has to do something really sensational and different. Secretariat looks like a two-year-old who could turn into a super horse. Beyond his explosive acceleration and lofty bearing, Secretariat exuded a human dimension that quickly gained him national fame. Secretariat just had a regal way of standing before he was going out to work out, and uh, he looked like he was in charge. He was beautifully balanced and had this rich red color and the interesting blaze, but the best thing about him was his eye. It was incredible. All of a sudden, he'd be looking at stands, he'd walk down, slow down, finally come to a little halt. Like he was saying hello to that pretty girl in the stands. Every time he heard a camera, he turned. He'd stop and turn. I saw a secretary once watch an airplane fly overhead. I'd never seen that before. He had that star quality about him. Sort of like the movie stars arriving on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. He would look over, give you the perfunctory, it's me, good to see you, gotta go. Instead of a bit player uh, on the New York stage, he would have probably been an English stage actor doing Shakespeare. If he could have talked, he'd have been a son of a because he was arrogant. He was the heavyweight champion of the world, is what he was, and he knew it. And when we come back, more on Secretariat's life. We do it all here on Our American Stories, and you can't wait to hear the rest of this great story. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. We continue the story of Secretariat. And why are we doing it? Well, why not? And rarely do you hear my opinions about anything, but there's nothing to me like being at the far turn of a major sport sporting event called horse racing. And by the way, this has never changed. You know, you watch an NBA game and commercials ruin the momentum and the flow. You watch all kinds of other sports. There are no commercials in the middle of a two-minute race. You see it from beginning to end. No one and nothing can change it. If you ever get a chance, go to the Kentucky Derby, go to Santa Anita and see a great race there, and bring a lady, and just sit at that far turn and watch these beasts roar a race around that turn with jockeys sitting on a, on a horse going 35 to 40 miles an hour, and they're practically riding them bareback. It is something to see. And let's pick up the story. That marquee quality sparked investor interest throughout the racing world. In early 1973, shares for Secretariat were sold for a record total of $6 million. Then, after winning his first two starts of the year, the unexpected happened in his Kentucky Derby tune-up at Aqueduct Racetrack in Queens, New York. Here's Jim Gaffney, Secretariat's exercise rider. The day before the Wood Memorial, I worked him a, an eighth of a, a three-eighths of a mile, and I had to kick him to, to make him work, and I never had to do that. And I told the foreman, there's something the matter with this horse. I said, you better have him checked out. And this word never got back to Lucian Lauren. Ronnie said the horse was acting funny in the gate, and every time he pulled on the rein, he jerked his head back that he had never done that, and he couldn't understand it. 70 yards from the finish, it's Angolite in front, Sham on the outside. And here's the finish, Angolite holding on, winning it by a neck. It's a big upset. Secretariat finishing third in a photo. And as you can imagine, the investors weren't thrilled. I mean, they had just popped down $6 million, and in this tune-up to the Derby, just a terrible run. And they thought, what have we done? Well, with the Derby just two weeks away, serious questions arose about the jockey's ability to guide Secretariat to victory in the first leg of the Triple Crown. Secretariat's trainer, Lucian Lauren, didn't know what to think. But others were losing confidence in the horse. Secretariat came to Kentucky with a huge number of detractors. All of a sudden, Lucian Lauren brings him into Louisville, and there's just all this uh, uh, controversy about uh, rumors that he might have hurt himself uh, in the Wood Memorial. And, and Jimmy the Greek at that time was going around telling people the week of the Derby that the horse was lame. This horse was such a great two-year-old. He was horse of the year as a two-year-old. And now he's coming in here with a chance to be maybe the greatest thing since Man of War. But you can't block out all these rumors, and, and you wonder, what's going to happen here today? Well, with all those negative rumors, Secretariat was still a 3-2 to two favorite to win the biggest race of his young life. And by the way, the biggest race in racing. A record 134,000 hummed with expectation. This is Churchill Downs, Louisville, Kentucky, on this first Saturday in May, 1973. I'm Jack Whitaker, and this is the 99th running of the Kentucky Derby. Moments from a start. Secretariat is in the gate. Mike Gallant is moving in. Secretariat throws his head a bit. They're at the post. And they're off. For the lead. On the inside, that's Angolite for the lead. He broke dead last. And he was dead last after a quarter of a mile. Then Forgo on the outside, Navajo, followed by Secretariat. Into the spring of his three-year-old year, Secretariat really started making up his own mind. He seemed to understand racing. 
and seemed to want to dictate his own strategy. Secretariat is fourth and moving up on the outside and is now third and moving at the leaders as they come for the head of the stretch. They're at the head of the stretch and Cham is the leader. He leads it by a length. Secretariat is in the center of the racetrack and driving. And then he made this tremendous move and we knew that we had seen something historic and maybe perhaps we were going to have a great triple crown winner. Now and there's the stretch, it's sec Secretariat. Secretariat on the outside to take the lead. Sham holding in second. It's Secretariat moving away, he has it by two and a half. And I read back and hit him a couple of times. And shoot, he just took off, I just put my stick down and he, he went by two and a half very easily. Sham, then on the outside, our native. That's the wire, it's going to be Secretariat. He wins it by two lengths. Secretariat just broke the old Kentucky Derby record. People were looking at the tote board. He ran the last quarter mile in 23 seconds, which is unprecedented in the Derby. Secretariat did something that no horse ever did. He went each of the five quarters faster. It just defied logic. Another quarter mile he might have taken to the air and flown, which is obviously what was in his blood. As the first horse to run the mile and a quarter Derby in under two minutes, Secretariat turned what had been uneasiness in Louisville into confidence in Baltimore. He went off as a 3-10 to 10 favorite in the Preakness Stakes at Pimlico Racecourse, where I lived just six miles away and spent my favorite Saturdays of my life for eight years. This is the tightly turned second leg of the Triple Crown. Well, it's almost ready. The horse is just about to move into that starting gate. The weather is perfect, and we're just waiting for a fine horse race. Secretariat was still running with an explosive style, and centrifugal force would carry him wide on the turns. And Pimlico is considered to have tighter turns. That was the one I was worried about. And they're off. Oh, the early lead. That deadly dream on the outside at Coley Taj. Then it's also torsion on the outside. In the Preakness, he broke last again. Now he's going to the turn. You think it's going to be the same thing as the Derby. Then our native and Secretariat is last again as they move into the first turn. Turcotte took a hold of him made it almost an imperceptible gesture with his hands like a man adjusting his cuff took the horse to the outside and he went boom he went from last to first in about 180 yards sham under an easy hole right now but here comes secretariat he's moving fast and he's going to the outside he's going for the lead and it's right now he's looking for it he just accelerated and just circled the field and i said good lord what is turcotte thinking about i mean this horse is cooked because you just didn't see a horse ever make a move like that especially in the first turn it was far too early for him to have been moved strategically ronnie wouldn't have asked him to run that soon in the race, it had to be what the horse wanted to do. Secretariat holding it by a length and a half. Here comes Sham second on the outside now. Now it's Secretariat the leader by a length and a half with Sham moving into second. Once I get to the lead there and I just drop him on the rail and just turn his head loose. And he went back to Galpin, his old self, you know, he just loping along. You know, I kept thinking Belmont. Secretariat by two lengths. Sham driving second. There's a strong left-handed whip again by Tinkai. He goes to it time and time again. But Ronnie Turcotte has his whip put away. And Secretariat has him put away. He's beginning to draw away. It is Secretariat. He's coming to the wire. He wins it by two and a half, almost three. He went in 
to another level of, of consciousness in the uh, public eye. There were actually kids standing on the rail as he came by. This horse had now captured the public, not just a racing crowd. Secretariat did it again today. He won the Preakness at Pimlico, and he's now two-thirds of the way toward the Triple Crown. Expectations were very high for any horse, not just Secretariat, to win the Triple Crown. After 25 years since Citation had won it in 1948, there had been a lot of very good horses that had tried to win and failed. Winning the Triple Crown seemed almost impossible. It uh, was tantamount to the 400 hitter in baseball or the DiMaggio 56-game hitting streak. This was something that uh, most Americans had finally concluded would never happen again. No one will ever win the Triple Crown again. And by the way, they thought that because of specialized breeding. In each of these races, if you're not a race fan, the Kentucky Derby is what you'd call the mid-length race. The, the Pimlico is the sprint. And then the Belmont, it's a mile and a half, which is forever for horses. And so horses, as they became more specialized in the breeding, well, it just became to seem that it was impossible to have one horse do all of these things. And that's why it had been so long. Many people, people speculate that uh, there had been a Triple Crown winner, and why it's still so hard today. And we had American Pharaoh do it just recently. And by the way, you want to hear a terrific story. Me, my dad, and American Pharaoh, New York Times column written by a guy named Gary Ginsburg, who is an executive vice president at Time Warner. And he recalled all those days at the track where he and his dad would go down to Aqueduct or Belmont. He was a New Yorker. And they'd always wanted to see a Triple Crown winner. And, well... His father saw one with Secretariat, but didn't really live long enough or good enough quality of life to witness American Pharaoh. Alzheimer's had sunk in, and, well, the dad got to watch the race with the son, but the dad had no idea what was going on. And so it was a really a lament of times past and a common passion between a father and a son, whether it's fishing, horse racing, whatever it might be. I take my little girl to horse racing. Uh, as often as I can into great horse races. And when we come back, the greatest of all the horses, Secretariat, after these messages. Not since Man of War in 1920 had a horror so captivated the nation. Now, the 1 to 10 favorite had a chance to succeed where seven horses failed since 1948 to win the Belmont Stakes after taking the first two legs of the Triple Crown. June 9, 1973, the day of reckoning. Broke bright and clear. By post time, millions of Secretariat fans put their money where their hearts were, some for the first time in their lives. Of the 70,000 that overflowed the stands, a few had been at the track since sunup. I was there at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was there all night. I fell asleep against a tree by his barn. The fittest I have ever seen a horse. His eyes were big as saucers. His nostrils were flared. He was nickering. 
his ears were playing, his muscles were rippling, and he's walking around on his hind legs. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, what are we going to see today? Before the race, you could see not only what Secretariat meant to really veteran, hard-boiled, you know, step over a guy with a heart attack so they don't get shut out at the window betters, okay? But also with people who were at that track who were not gamblers, who were their kids because it was Secretariat. This was the people's horse. Everybody wanted to see him not only win, but do it in a way that would really be authoritative. I'm looking at him and I think, I've never seen him walk like this before. He looks like the execution man. He's going to the gallows. <laughs> He's about to dispatch somebody. And they're off. Looks like the early lead goes to Mike Gallant. Yes, Mike Gallant going for the lead with Price and Press on the outside. Secretary of the way very well has good position on the rail and in fact is now going up with the leader. Sham had been such a tough competitor for him in the first two races. Uh, he wondered would this finally be Sham's day. My instructions were uh, to, 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 to be very close to Secretaria from the way go. And now it's Sham. Sham and Secretaria are right together into the first turn. Mike Gallant has third behind them. Then it's twice the Prince and the trailer is private smiles as they go by the turn. He just felt like running. That was the day he felt terrific. I said, just leave him alone. I said, just take a long hold and let him run his own race. Ron Turcott, he let him run. Come on, let's see what he's got. You've done the Derby, you've done the Preakness, come on. Let's see how he goes all out. How good can this guy go? They continue down the backstretch. Is that Secretariat now taking the lead? I looked at the teletimer and saw that the horse had gone three quarters of a mile in 109 and two, which is the fastest three quarters of a mile ever run in the Belmont Stakes. And he's leaving Sham at this point. They're moving on the turn now. For the turn at Secretariat. It looks like he's opening. The lead is increasing. He is running and running and running. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, He's lost the horse. Three and a half. He's moving into the turn. Secretary and holding on to a large lead. Sham is second and then it's a long way back to my gallant and twice a print. And I'm thinking, he has gone insane. And I'm saying, I'm cursing under my breath. You moron. What are you doing? You know, you're going to kill the horse. You're going to lose the triple crown. Don't you know how fast you're going? Nobody knew that that was going to happen. Uh, not the rider, not the trainer, not the owner. I think probably not the horse. Secretary is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretary by 12. Secretary by 14 lengths on the turn. And he still has a quarter of a mile to go. And I'm thinking to myself, he's going to totally collapse in the stretch. He can't keep this up. And I'm asking other guys are on the track, what are you thinking? And everybody to a man is thinking, he's going too damn fast. Secretary is in a position that is impossible to catch. He's into the stretch. Secretary leads his field by 18 lengths. Lucian said to me, oh my God, Ronnie, just don't fall off. Don't fall off. Finally, after I turned for home, my curiosity got the best of me. I had to turn around. When I look at it, I scare myself. They're in the stretch. Secretariat has opened the 22 length lead. He is going to be the triple crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. 25 lengths in front. 
And here's the fallout. I believed in Pegasus that day. I mean, because I saw him. I mean, I never saw anything like that in my life. 31 lengths. I mean, it's a, think of what that, I mean, that's unbelievable. It's like, it's like they were racing on two different racetracks. It was like the Lord was holding the reins. Secretariat was one of his creatures, and he maybe whispered to him a, a go. And that horse really went. It was really an almost supernatural uh, experience. It really was. I leaped up out of my chair at Belmont Park shouting, we'll never see this again. And I get to the elevator to go down to the winner's circle and I'm standing next to Pete Axton. And he said, I used to think that the Allie Fraser fight in Madison Square Garden was the greatest thing I've ever seen. This was even greater. Everybody was speechless. And then when it set in, people were crying. I actually saw people crying at this event. I mean, it was such an overwhelming thing. They were these co-eds lining the rail. And this sounds hard to believe, but I swear half of them were weeping as he went by. Jack Nicholas once called me over and said, you were at the Belmont, you saw that race. And I said, yes. And he said, I was all alone in my living room, watching. And as he came down the stretch, pulling away, I applauded, and I cried. And Haywood said to him, in a, in a brilliant moment of epiphany and insight, he said, Jack, don't you understand? He said, all of your life, in your game, you've been striving for perfection. And he said, at the end of the Belmont, you saw it. When you beat a track record, you normally beat it by a fifth of a second. He knocked two seconds, maybe two and a fifth, off of the track record and won by 31 lengths. It was... There, there's no horse in the history of horse racing could have ever beaten Secretariat on that day. You're not supposed to win majors by a dozen strokes. You're not supposed to score 100 points. And you're not supposed to win the Belmont by 31 lengths. The desperate way in which the losers were so beaten and so battered by this horse, it was the Confederate Army staggering home after Appomattox. I mean, these are all flowery, ridiculous things, and you could say, hey, it's nothing but a horse race. I'm sorry. This horse was an athlete. But this is more than a story about a great American horse. This is the story of a great American team, the team's leader, Penny Chennery. In 1971, with her father a victim of Alzheimer's, the family's horse farm began losing money. Chennery's siblings originally planned to sell the operation when their father could no longer run it. Chenery, however, wanted to try to fulfill her father's dream to win the Kentucky Derby. The housewife and mother of four fired longtime trainer Casey Hayes and hired Roger Lauren to train and manage the Meadow Stable horses. Lauren helped to cut costs and return the operation to profitability before leaving. In May of 1971, Chenery hired his father, Lucian Lauren, and in 1972, they guided the Meadow Farms colt Reva Ridge to victory in the Kentucky Derby and Belmont Stakes. Again, it was a great movie script to have Reva Ridge. Indeed, her farm manager, an old Mr. Gentry, said to me after 1972, oh, I'm sorry, Haywood, for Ms. Tweedy. Next year, she knocked me. She had all that excitement with Reva, and next year, she got nothing. And, of course, nothing was Secretariat. Were it not for Penny Chenery, I think Secretariat would have been as famous and as popular a racehorse, but I don't think we would have remembered him in quite as completely a satisfying way. 
Penny was the perfect owner for Secretariat. Uh, she was this uh, uh, attractive, uh, intelligent, uh, gracious woman. And I think because of her, probably, a lot of the women in America really became interested in Secretariat, maybe more than they would have been had there been uh, a man owner. I hope I've been a role model for women, but it just was never in italics in my uh, game plan. I just happened to be a woman. And that was Penny you were listening to. And when we come back, a few more thoughts on Secretariat, and then we will play you that me, my dad, and American Pharaoh segment we talked about earlier, uh, the last Triple Crown winner, of course, American Pharaoh. And we're talking right now about the greatest Triple Crown winner of all time, Secretariat. This is our American Stories, Secretariat story, continues. In November of 1973, just 16 months since his inauspicious debut, the big chestnut retired and was set to stud at Claiborne Farm in Paris, Kentucky. Shortly after, the Today Show arrived to do a hit on Secretariat. Here's NBC's Tom Hanman and Dick Enberg. And uh, we set up right uh, by the Secretariat paddock. And it was one of the great performances of all time because it was like he knew he was on national TV. He sat there and he posed with his head and his ears and it was like the star knew that the red light was on, it's time to perform. I asked Seth Hancock, now how could you tell? I mean, they all look so magnificent. How, how could you tell that Secretariat was any better than anyone else? He says, you know, it's their eyes. You know, the great athletes have great throwbreds. It's their eyes. And as he said eyes, Secretariat snapped his head and stared at me like that to say, and you better believe it. Just look me right in the eyes. And, and he told me then, he said, even out in the field, when they feed the horses, they wait till Secretariat eats first. In the fall of 1989, Secretariat became afflicted with laminitis, a painful and debilitating hoof condition. When his condition failed to improve after a month of treatment, he was euthanized on October 4 at the age of 19. We decided we'd bury him at 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning. You look at everybody's faces and tears rolling down the cheeks. And, you know, but that's that. You know, you bury him and uh, you be thankful for what you had and go on back to your job and see if you can come close to getting your hands on another one like him, which will never happen and you know it, but that's what you're in it for. Secretariat was given the rare honor of being buried whole. Usually only the head, heart, and hooves of a winning racehorse are buried. The autopsy revealed what every poet knew, that his heart was huge. At 22 pounds, his heart was two and a half times larger than those who ran so far behind him. When I did the autopsy on Secretariat, we were quite astonished. He was certainly unusual. He was almost a, a freak in nature, but a freak in terms of being so abnormally perfect. He had a larger motor, and he was able to crack up oxygen and synthesize it faster and more efficiently than any other horse I've ever seen. He just had a superior power pack, and he was showing it to the world. I wonder what he thought. He must have had a sense of accomplishment. 
every now and then some athlete is touched for a moment with a kind of higher level of greatness which they may never achieve again but at that moment they were more than life allows it was the same thing that Babe Ruth did for baseball there's someone that everyone can relate to think about be amazed about and that's what he did for racing And he really brought American people around, well, around horse racing and actually just brought them together. And that brings us to our American Pharaoh story that I talked to you about before. Gary Ginsburg, the executive vice president of corporate marketing and communications at Time Warner, tells the heartwarming story of he and his father and how they spent summers at the racetrack. And again, American Pharaoh, another Triple Crown winner. Well, here's Gary lamenting about the life 40 years later of he and his dad. Into the stretch, and American Pharaoh makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong. Frosted is second with one eighth of a mile to go. American Pharaoh's got a two lane lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole, and here it is. The 37 year wait is over. American Pharaoh is finally the one. American Pharaoh has won the triple crown. When American Pharaoh crossed the finish line in Belmont Stakes on June 6, 2015, becoming the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years, I cried. After talking with friends who also watched the race, most of us men in our 50s and 60s, I discovered I was not alone. Many of us were overcome by emotion and, as it turns out, mostly for the same reason. We were thinking about our dads. For a generation of American men born during the Great Depression, racing was much more than a five-week diversion from the first Saturday in May to the first Saturday in June. It was an obsession. And the obsession was shared with us, their children, so that in many cases, horse racing came to define the relationship we had with our fathers and the little free time they had to share with us. For me and for so many of my friends Saturday, the one person with whom we all wanted to share this historic moment was no longer by our side. The joy and thrill of the race was tempered by a profound sadness. My dad, Erwin Ginsberg, has had four great passions in life. The law, tennis, his family, and thoroughbred racing, though not necessarily in that order. He developed his fascination with horses as a kid in Buffalo, during what was arguably the sport's hated. Following the exploits of horses like War Admiral and Citation, between the ages of 7 and 18, he had already witnessed an astonishing five Triple Crown winners, and he was hooked. He wanted to make sure I got hooked, too. It's a beautiful Sunday, the one day of the week he didn't go into his law office, was race day. We'd pile into our Chrysler New Yorker and head from our home in Buffalo to the Fort Erie racetrack in Ontario. 
once there, Dad would walk me through the intricacies of the racing form. Speed ratings, past performances, class levels, before placing a series of exotic bets on the fillies and mares traveling the hard-bitten southern Ontario race circuit. When he lost, which was more times than not, he'd angrily crumple the betting slips, ending up with a small mountain under his seat by the end of the day. That horse, named Secretariat, is the reason why one of the greatest crowds in horse racing history has turned out here at Belmont Park in New York to see a... But we were in front of our Zenith TV for the best race of all, the the 1973 Belmont Stakes. Secretariat had already run the fastest Kentucky Derby and Preakness in history and came to the race of champions as the prohibitive favorite. For my dad, it represented the best chance to end a 25-year Triple Crown drought. My 11-year-old self sensed the moment's historic significance, so I brought my tape recording. And you will see Secretariat being led. He is number is two, but he goes into the number one post. Listening to that cassette today, I can hear the tension in my father's voice as the horses make their way to the starting gate. He yells at me to move away from the screen, though the race is still a minute from post. We're ready to go for this tremendous Belmont stick. Then the race starts. And it quickly becomes a two-horse contest, with Secretariat pulling away after the half-mile pole. We're quiet at first, but the silence breaks when I shout, he's going to win. My father shushes me, and we both go quiet again until Secretariat rounds the final turn. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 length on the turn. Sam is dropping back. My father starts repeating, oh my God, oh my God. But Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. While I'm unable to control my prepubescent excitement, I begin screaming again at the screen. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. In the years that followed, we watched Seattle Slew and Affirm win their Triple Crowns and continued our Sunday traditions at the track. Eventually, with me adding to the mountain under our seats, thanks to my paper route earnings. Then I left Buffalo for college, law school, and life in New York, and another Triple Crown drought set in. A decade ago, my father found out he had Alzheimer's. His mom, dad, and brother had all had the disease. He had feared it his entire adult life, and now he was to suffer the same fate. He was forced into a retirement he never wanted. But his love of horses endured. Three summers running, I took him to the Saratoga race course until the betting became too complicated for him. But the Belmont still held a special place. Even as his brilliant mind declined, twice he managed to travel by himself from Buffalo to New York with hopes of witnessing one more triple crown alongside his son and twice we were denied. Standing side by side, watching first Smarty Jones and then Big Brown lose in heartbreaking fashion were among the happiest moments of my dad's retirement and of my adult life. Victor, you just won the Belmont Stakes and with it, ended the 37-year drought and got your first Triple Crown finally. Just after the Belmont this year, my face still flushed from crying, I called my mom in Buffalo to see if dad had watched. No, they hadn't watched the race. 
He wouldn't know a horse from a rabbit, she said. Instead, they were sitting at the table, having dinner. My father oblivious that his 37-year wait for another Triple Crown winner was over. Well, you might not be able to feel how fast he's going, but I can feel how happy you are. Let's go to Kenny Rice. I started to cry all over again. And thank you for that. Me, my dad, an American pharaoh, and secretary at horse racing for the hour, storytelling like only we do here on Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg and the team for all the work they do. Our American Stories, and we love to dig into the idea and the reality of the American dream. I think a lot of people think it's dead. I think a lot of people are trying to sell it such, but it's not. And we love digging in, thanks to Job Creators Network, into the real-life stories of folks who come here with nothing and build things. And it happens over and over and over again. It's why so many people are trying to get into this country. And not to Cuba or to China. By the way, we did a fascinating story about a Chinese-American who tried to emigrate to China just as a thought experiment to see how many people are actually trying to go to China. And it's nobody. Nobody is trying to go to China. And joining us for the hour to talk about his life is Bernie Moreno, owner of the Bernie Moreno Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain in the Midwest, and that's car dealerships, of course. Bernie, thanks for joining us. Oh, happy to have you. You bet. Hey, we start off, Bernie, every interview we do by asking folks to tell us about where they were born, who their parents were, and the effect both of those things, both their place of birth and their family, had on their lives. Yeah, no, for, well, for me, it's everything. Uh, you know, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and uh, my dad and my mom uh, both uh, were obviously uh, uh, born in Colombia as well. Our whole family's from there. My dad was educated in the U.S., so he uh, uh, he got his uh, uh, undergraduate degree in college in Columbia, got his uh, medical degree in Columbia, and then came up to the United States in the 50s to get his Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania. And then my mom, who back then, you know, in the, in the 50s, uh, most women uh, you would never think about as going to college. Uh, my grandfather insisted that she go to college, so she went, uh, she came to the U.S. and studied in California and uh, the, uh, the, uh, at the time, the woman's equivalent of Stanford back then. Uh, so both my parents were educated there. They have a, had a profound influence on my life, my values. And uh, so that's the story. And tell me about the transition, because it's always so interesting to me to, to hear the story. I remember from my grandparents, one came from Lebanon, uh, one came from Italy. And I, oh, it always just fascinated me. That, that trip, because that, that first trip is, is tough. It's a real dare. It's a real act of courage, in a way, to just leave everything you know and go to a foreign land. Uh, what was that like for your, your dad and then for yourself and your mom? Yeah, now, as my mom likes to tell the story, she packed up seven kids in 23 suitcases and got in a plane, and uh, we flew from uh, Bogota to, uh, to Fort Lauderdale and uh, you know, started a new life. Uh, it was 
particularly hard on my dad. My dad was uh, the dean of the medical school in South America and Colombia at, at the youngest age ever. So he was in his mid-30s, and he's the dean of, med- of the most prominent medical school in Colombia. Then he became what was the equivalent of the secretary of health for the country. And when he came to the U.S., even though he had all that background and training and everything else, he still had to get his residency. So he went from being you know, the palace of the outhouse pretty quickly. So he had to join basically 20-year-olds uh, getting their residency uh, you know, with midnight shifts and 24-hour shifts and things like that when he was, had, had been a, a pretty prominent person in Colombia. So he had to eat a lot of uh, humble pie, so we say. Yeah, and, that, and, uh, so, and so watching him do that was very inspiring. That is inspiring because, my goodness, it also tells you how much he thought this was a really good move for his family because when a, when a father's willing to eat that kind of humble pie, he's doing it for a whole host of reasons uh, and more than maybe you could even imagine at the time. Yeah, I mean, our, our American story is probably a little bit different than most. You know, my, my parents were very well off in South America. My grandparents were extremely wealthy on both sides of the family. My mom made a decision for us to come to the U.S. because one of the things that makes this country unique is that you are not uh, uh, driven by the circumstances of your birth in, in, in America. So if you're anywhere else in the world, pretty much, or you mentioned China, anywhere else in the world, if you're born wealthy or you're born poor, you're going to stay in that trajectory. Whereas in the U.S., you have to determine your destiny. And my, it was very important for my mom for us to come to the U.S. and be the determiners of our destiny. She didn't want us to be. Uh, in a, she didn't want us to be in a situation where we took wealth and privilege for granted. So we came to the U.S. and rebooted our lives. And we we came from, you know, a very privileged uh, background in Colombia uh, to being middle class in America. And what a beautiful what a beautiful thing for your family to do for you, by the way. You know, we were talking to uh, Mario Andretti. He was one of our American Dreamer series, Bernie. And, you know, Mario's circumstance, his family had had some wealth in Italy, in the northern part of Italy. But then came World War II, and then came Yugoslavia coming in to claim what was the family vineyard. And the, fa- the father was asked, look, you can keep part of your vineyard, but you've got to renounce your Catholic faith, and you've got to renounce, well... Your, your life, in essence, and swear allegiance to Tito. And his father's like, no, thank you. No, thank you. And, and Mario and the family struggle for the longest time. He comes to the United States, to Nazareth, and just invents this life. And he said something interesting. He said, if I had grown up in Italy, I had some wealth. But in Italy, you had, you were, your class determined everything, and I did not have enough wealth to be a race car driver. But in America, merit, merit is what gets you where you go. Exactly right. And, and then, uh, you know, and my dad, you know, when he, he passed away three years ago, but, you know, he was the chief of surgery of the local hospital. He built a very thriving private practice. My mom had three real estate offices with 100 employees, but she sold a towel banker. So we got to watch what people who are driven, that have uh, fire in their belly, who don't look at anything, any obstacles, anything other than something that they need to be overcome. We watched and witnessed. My parents climbed that ladder uh, from middle class to, to wealth, but on their own merit. And that's really, I think, at the end of the day, what my mom wanted to teach us. And it was it just left a mark mark with us that I'll never forget. I mean, she, she made us work from the time we were 12 years old. It just wasn't optional. Well, when, and, uh, when we come great. back, Bernie, hold that thought. 
When we come back, we're going to dig into that first job because we love talking about first jobs with everybody. We have Mark Cuban. We have Ashton Kutcher, Mike Rowe, you name it. And just everybody, we ask about work because work's so important. If obviously, your parents taught you a work ethos, no entitlement uh, in your family. Uh, in fact, they stripped it away by moving to the United States. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages with Bernie Marino. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Bernie Marino as a part of our American Dreamers series, brought to us, as always, by Job Creators Network. Bernie, we left off uh, with first jobs, and let's, let's hear from you. You said you started work at 12 years old, and my girl's about to turn 12 next year, and that's when I'm starting her, too. What was your first job? Yeah, so you'll appreciate this. So we lived in Fort Lauderdale, and as you know, there's a big group of condos in, uh, in that area. And so I was a paper delivery boy. So at, at 2 o'clock in the morning, some guy would pull up with a van, pick me up at my house, and drive me two miles to what's called Gulf Ocean Mile. And then I would spend the next three hours delivering newspapers in con- uh, inside uh, these big, huge condo buildings. And then I'd get back home around 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, sleep for an hour and a half, and then get up and go to school. Can you imagine putting your 12-year-old daughter with <laughs> some strange guy in a van in the middle of the night? It was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time. You know, one of our favorite. a week, by the way. <laughs> we have this uh, Lenore Skenazy comes on our show on parenting, and she got d- dubbed the world's worst parent by the New York Post because she decided that maybe her little kid, her, her child, uh, I think 11 years old at the time, could take the subway to school alone, and they just <laughs> hammered her for it. And I thought, Mike, this is what everybody did when we were kids. Right. Well, imagine what they say about my mom letting me get in a uh, van with some strangers. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Division of Youth and Services would be – she'd be in prison right now, Bernie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about your, 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 your itch for cars. Uh, when did you first get that itch? Yeah, so for, for uh, since I was a little little kid, I could name every brand of car when I was four, five, six years old. It was actually a way I learned English. Uh, so I learned English watching Schoolhouse Rock, uh, watching Sesame Street, reading car magazines, and I just loved cars. Uh, my dad loved cars himself. Uh, he, he, his favorite brand was Mercedes-Benz. So I would go to car dealerships, uh, you know, ask them questions, go with my dad to buy cars. And, um, you know, my dad used it as a marker. You know, cars were a marker for him. Like, if he... Uh, he was being successful. He would buy a car that was just a little bit nicer than his previous one, and that was a really important marker that he used to to kind of track his own progression. And uh, so I always knew I wanted to be in the car business. So just little kid, always just that was my dream. You just knew, and it, and, and it's interesting that and uh, you may be one of the only freshmen in high school to ever write a personal letter to the 
head of General Motors, telling him what was right and, more importantly, what was wrong with his car company. Talk about that. Yeah, so we had taken a history class. We learned about Wilson's uh, 16 points uh, during World War One to end the war. Yep. So I wrote, uh, I wrote Roger Smith the 16 points to fix General Motors. And uh, he actually wrote me back a three-page letter, one point by point. And uh, and then he, he he lied at the end. He said he was going to make sure GM was in good health when I uh, when I took over. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I want to read something that he did write to you. He he wrote this quote: "It's not often I receive a letter from someone who is planning to take over my job." Smith replied, "You are to be congratulated for knowing exactly what it is you want to do once you complete your high school and college education. I'll try my best to make sure that General Motors is in good financial shape when you join us 11 years from now." So you're right; he did lie. <laughs> he did lie. About that, yeah, uh, but uh, and, and, and so that letter, you know, inspired me to to go to the University of Michigan because obviously that's where you go if you want to be at General Motors as an executive. I went there, went to work for Saturn Corporation, which is really his brainchild. I give him credit for that. And uh, that's how I started my career in the carpet. You know, what's interesting is we did an hour on the life of Henry Ford. And I didn't have an appreciation quite for what he and Rockefeller managed to do simultaneously. Because Ford was able to bring a car down to a price point where every American could own one. And but not for the spread of this thing called gasoline at low prices all around the country. What was going to power the darn thing? Uh, yeah, it was amazing that those two guys lived during the same era. And obviously, as you know, we live here in Cleveland, where Rockefeller made, made his company. That's right. Happen. And uh, it's, it's amazing today, over 100 years later, a lot of the legacy of Rockefeller lives here in Cleveland. Oh, you bet, with all the endowments, with all the, the things yep. he left behind. You know, it's amazing, Bernie, just a separate point, that the average American kid doesn't know these stories but somehow knows how bad these guys were or how bad these, quote, industrialists were. But but for these guys, there's no American middle class. No, absolutely. I mean, they were. you can't judge them by today's era. No. Uh, you have to judge them by the era in which they lived. But these guys created, created they helped create it, the America that it is today. You bet. And, and Bernie, what was your first car? First car is a Honda CRX, a red Honda CRX. So I read an automobile magazine, I'm sorry, in Car and Driver magazine about this new Honda that was coming out. Yep. It was $7,995. Uh, my, uh, my parents told me I could buy any car I wanted as long as I paid for it. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> so I, I saved up, you know, again, I'd worked since I was 12. So when I was 16, I'd, I had exactly that amount of money saved up. I went to the local Honda dealer. They had no idea about this car. They never even heard of it. <laughs> so I put a deposit down, bought the car. And uh, that was my first car. And every dollar I every dollar I made, I think eighty cents of the dollar went into into the car. Was the CRX the mid engine? No, it was a little guy with the, the rear hatchback. Oh, that's right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I had an MR two, which uh, oh, okay. which was a heck of a lot of fun to drive. And uh, did you did you get off the uh, sticker price on that, or did you have to pay full boat? No, no, no. This is this is uh, this is the eighties. Uh, I just aged myself. Yep. So Honda dealers would charge over sticker. Over sticker. So because, they, because they hadn't heard of the car, right. I was able to buy it for sticker. Shortly thereafter, they were marking them all up 2000 bucks over sticker, so I was very happy. Good for you. So you negotiated a good deal for yourself, too. too. Exactly. And uh, so so now you're, you're, you're thinking about this thing called the car business. How do you get from coming out of college to doing this thing called owning a, a, a dealership? And by the way, car dealers are, you know, in any town, they're the lifeblood of a town. Great, good jobs, yeah, yeah. Uh, good connections. There, you can't imagine towns without them. But how did you? How did you do this leap? Obviously, you were not going to get any financial help from your parents for this. No, no. My mom uh, uh, made it clear 
that the contract was we educate you to age 22, and then we really, really love you after that. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. So, so uh, I, I graduated from college, went to work for Saturn Corporate, met a, a guy in Boston who was a car dealer, went to work for him for 12 years, uh, and, uh, and then out of the blue, 11 and a half years ago, uh, 12 years after working for this guy, uh, Mercedes-Benz called me and said, hey, we have a dealership that's very underperforming in Cleveland. Uh, it's owned by Roger Penske. Uh, we've uh, convinced them to sell it. Uh, we want you to buy it. And uh, I had took every cent I'd ever seen in my life and mortgaged every, every possession I had and bought this one dealership that was selling 200 cars a year. And I uh, took that dealership, and this year we'll sell over 3,000 cars. <laughs> I was doing about $16 million a year in revenue. Our company this year would do close to a billion. And uh, we just took that one dealership and grew it into the company that we have today. And imagine this. Robert, this, for folks who don't know the car business, the Penske name is a pretty good name. So you're coming in there with no experience. This could have been the sucker sale of all time. <laughs> you, know, you know that, right? Absolutely. But you didn't Absolutely. care, did you? No, no. You know, I knew. Listen, I, I, I even said this to the Mercedes people. I said, if Roger Penske was the guy running that dealership, forget it. Not, Roger Penske could run circles around me. There's no question about that. The guy's an amazing man. But I knew that who was running that dealership was somebody who was maybe a C or D player. Yep. Uh, because it was such a small dealership, I knew that I could make a difference in that store, and that's what I did. Uh, and so I'll always be for, eternally grateful to, to Roger Penske for giving me the opportunity to buy that store from him. Yep. Like I say, he's, he's an amazing man, amazing story. He happens to be from Cleveland as well. But, uh, you know, we were able to take that dealership and just be very successful with it. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure, you know, a guy like him is happy for your success, too. That's the thing about the, the, the folks that I think are often mis- mischaracterized or maligned by the media. And that's, I think, business people. And that's half the reason we're doing this kind of show, Bernie, is because uh, American people don't really know what goes into starting businesses or who these people are. And now they're hearing your story and the risks you took with your own capital and your time, what was the key to turning that place around? Talk about some of the things that you did that weren't being done by the management before, before you. I think it, was, it, was, it all starts, and success all starts, and this is, again, ingrained in, with me, for, with, with, my, with my mom, which is uh, uh, you, it's all about attitude. The attitude that you have towards any objection that you have out there. There's, there you, can, you can buy into a million excuses as to why you shouldn't be successful, uh, there's something I call the immigrant mentality. And I had that immigrant mentality when I came to Cleveland to buy this dealership because I was all in. There was no plan B. There was no scenario in which partial success or s- small failure would be acceptable. So I knew I was all in on this dealership. And uh, as a result, I had to be successful. So I, I, if there was an obstacle, I just didn't buy into it. It, it just, you know, Cleveland's a blue-collar town. I heard that. They don't buy Mercedes in Cleveland. Just that wasn't an option for me. Right. I couldn't. I couldn't believe that that was true. Uh, and so we just did it, and we and we took exceptional care of our clients. You know, one of the things with me is that I love cars so much, like we talked about. But people don't love buying cars, which doesn't make sense to me. They don't love servicing cars. Yep. So our company's philosophy is changing that, and we we think of it as how do we put ourselves in the customer service business where people look at coming to a car dealership is a really positive experience. What a crazy thought, and let's hold that thought. When we come back, we're going to talk about this thing called fans as opposed to customers. Bernie believes in that. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. 
This is our American Dreamer series, and this is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and it's our American Dreamers segment, and we're spending the hour with Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain, and that's a car dealership, car dealerships in the Midwest. And where we left off was uh, talking about fans as opposed to customers, and we spent an hour with the founder of Metro Bank and what was amazing, and Commerce Bank, and what was amazing about his philosophy was that he didn't want customers he wanted fans and he even wrote a book about that talk about your stance on customers versus fans yeah we don't even call we don't even say the word customer because customer implies a transaction and uh what we what we ultimately want to create is a group of friends selling cars to other friends and um and and we look at his clients because we look at a a long relationship with that client not just one car or one service visit and we make our team members realize that their everything that our company does revolves around that client relationship. Well, and in the end, if you do this right, that's a massive unpaid sales force you have if you just take care of your clients. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's dramatically harder to get a client than to keep a client. And uh, so we look at the little things, again, little details. So we have things like, for example, we have a vision statement that our people – uh, carry with them at all times that they need to know. It's, it's very, very important. We have commandments. So, uh, you know, I went to Catholic school and they had the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are very negative. You know, it tells you all the stuff not to do. Right. So we have something called the Ten Commandments of our company that starts with having fun. Because why would you want to come to a company or a job that we're not having fun? So right. having fun is one of our commandments. Thou shalt have fun. <laughs> and, so we, and, and all of our team, our, all of our team members know those Ten Commandments and they got to follow them. It's pretty basic stuff. Yeah, pretty basic stuff. And I got to tell you, you're starting with the big one because, folks, you know, when you're having fun, you, having fun ripping people off, isn't, it can't be fun. It no, can't be. No, absolutely. No. And, and, and so, that, and it's, it's, and that, wouldn't be, that would be the opposite of the type of people that we want to hire. That's exactly right. And I think the reputation that, 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 that I think and the reason why people didn't want to go to car dealers, and I think you'll appreciate this, I put myself through law school uh, leasing cars and I had just found that, that the way that uh, car leasing companies were working, they were hiding the interest rates. They were calling these things money factors. They were selling the cars up. And all I did was treat the car lease like a sale. I had total transparency. And the next thing you know, I know, not only had great cars because I was buying the trades for a fair price, Brian, but I, I had these incredible customers who were coming to me, and then I was just selling the car. I was just handling the transactional side because the financial guys in these dealerships were so, so many of them were ripping people off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tell our team all the time: car dealerships didn't get a reputation by accident. Uh, and so that's the good news: is that the business that we're in is a low bar that we have to cross, and we just make certain that we blow that bar away. Yeah, and I think Bernie that the 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 Saturn people were trying to get around that, but yeah. that that wasn't the answer, was it? No, because Saturn Saturn no Saturn had a lot of great uh, uh, things to it. There's no question about that. I think that where Saturn went wrong is that the, the, they just never General Motors just never invested uh, money in making the car great. Right. So so had they made a great car, it would have been great. But uh, 
but you know, there, there's there's just so much of what Saturn did that really changed changed the business. It was a long time ago, so it was, and we're we're doing those. We're still putting those things in place in our company. Right, but in the end, if you don't have the cars, um, all you know, the fan experience, some of it has to do with the customer contact. But in the end, the product you're selling better be a good product too. Yeah, exactly. Because that that was the thing. The process was so strong that it carried Saturn for years, but eventually General Motors milked that product. And, and killed Saturn by not had General Motors invested a, a normal amount of money in product development, Saturn would be be the biggest car company uh, out there right now today because the process just killed it. Yep. But they they did the opposite. They bled they bled they bled the process down to nothing. Yeah, and and again, this is a, this is what can happen with big corporations. Um, they can just they can you know sometimes just miss it. And talk about the products. Um, talk about cars today uh, as opposed to 20 years ago, and talk about some of your favorites. Yeah, well, uh, Mercedes-Benz for sure. Uh, you know, I, I got, again, like I mentioned, my dad loved Mercedes. I love Mercedes. Uh, we have three Mercedes-Benz dealerships. It's definitely the uh, – you're not, you're not supposed to have favorites with kids or, or dealerships. <laughs> but in my case, I violate that rule, and Mercedes is for sure um, my favorite car. I would say after that, Porsche. Uh, you know, Porsche just is probably the best engineered vehicles in the world. You can't just can't beat it. Yep. Uh, and uh, that, you know, so those are the cars I drive every day. Uh, we're we're very uh, uh, bullish on Infinity. We think Infinity for, as a as a value luxury brand is a great great brand. And uh, and then Buick and GMC. I mean, I think from from General Motors um, after the bankruptcy. They, those are the two strongest brands I think that, that General Motors has is Buick and GFC, so we're very bullish about that brand as well. Well, that's fantastic. And you know, and going back to that culture we were talking about, um, you you give away your cell phone number to your to your clients. Right, I, right. I would I would guess that not many uh, heads of dealerships do that. So why do you do that? Well, you can't. This is this is I think the biggest issue that that companies have. Every company, literally every company, talks about great customer service. Everybody does. But there's a hypocrisy because they don't deliver great customer Every company doesn't deliver great customer service. Yep. And the leaders of those companies are the ones that preach one thing and do another. So, for example, if I say that our clients are the most important thing, well, then why wouldn't I give myself one ever? Right. They're more important than I am, aren't they? Yep. So if a client wants to get a hold of me and email me or send me or call me, I got to make that easy because otherwise my team will say, "Well, obviously you're better than they are." And the answer is, I'm not. I'm, uh, you know, service means to serve. So I'm here to serve our clients, just like our team members are. And you know what's interesting also is maybe you're creating the culture that says, "If I can just get high enough up the ranks, I don't have to deal with those pesky customers either." Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what does that say to people? Yeah, it's it's really terrible. You know, we had the 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 head of talent uh, of human talent, and they don't call it human resources at Chick Fil A, but uh, Deanna. I'm, I'm not recalling her last name, but Deanna is her first name. Terrific lady, and she was talking about at Chick Fil A how whenever they have to fire someone in the end, and they don't do it often, they really blame themselves because it meant that they hadn't hired right. When you go out right. to hire folks. What are you thinking about? What are you looking for? And for all the parents out there that are listening, you're listening to out to now to a guy who actually hires. What are you looking for? Personality. You can't. You can't train. You can't train personality. You can't train morals. You can't train train work ethic, and you can't train honesty. Those. That's absolutely the most important thing 
uh, that you got. And then from there, the rest is just, you know, some teaching and some learning. Um, but if you don't have those core values, how do you ferret them out? How do you, how do you know what's what? How do you know a person has honesty? How do you figure that one out? Uh, you look at their track record. I think you, you, you know, good interviews, good background checks, good uh, uh, ability to really get, get into, their, into their history a little bit. But you can see it in their personality. You know, if somebody's attracted to my company in sales, for example, because they want to make a killing selling uh, in terms of money with individual car transactions, that's not for me. Yep. Because, because I'm more interested in somebody who says to me, hey, listen, I, I want to make a little bit less money than normal on sales of cars, but make it up over the period of 10, 15, 20 years of that client, that's much more appealing. So you get a sense of what they're all about that way. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, if somebody wants to dig in with you for 10 or 15 years because they want the repeat business, they're telling you they don't want to work 70 hours a week for three years and burn out. They want to right. work 45 hours a week, but with integrity and stay in for a long time and meet their clients at the Little League field and not hide under a rock and not hide under a rock. When we come back, we're going to dig a little into public policy. We're going to talk a little about the obstacles that business folks face uh, more in our American Dreamers series. And for the hour, we have Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest. And he started it from scratch, digging into his own pocket and risking everything he had with one dealership. And now, well, my goodness... A nice little empire. More after these messages. Here in my car, I feel safest of all. I can lock all my doors and it's the only way live in cars. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we've been spending the hour in a delightful way. We love talking to American dreamers, because my goodness, if you're listening to this, it just lifts the spirits. I mean, imagine uh, working for someone who has the Ten Commandments, and the most important commandment is, thou shalt have fun. And by the way, this is the spirit of American business in the end. It's almost every entrepreneur I've ever met. You know, you're not going to get anywhere without a happy workforce and a workforce that really likes coming to work. What a crazy idea. And, Bernie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Hey, one more cultural point before we then dig into the uh, public policy space. You know, I, I, I co-write columns with a guy named Mike Levin who's grown some very big businesses. And what he's always worried about is too much senior management and too much distance between him and the people on the, on the, on the ground. And that in the end, too many vice presidents can really mess up an operation. And, and talk about that as you grow, um, what you worry about and what the hardest fights are internally. Forget what, what the government's doing. We're going to get to that next. But internally, and not your comp- competition, just inside your own culture, how do you keep what you have? That is a, that is a remarkably important point. And I made that mistake. I, I created a structure where I had... Uh, layers, extra layers in there with vice presidents and a chief operating officer and all that stuff. And it did separate me from my people, and the company suffered as a result. 
so subsequently, I've gotten rid of all that structure, and uh, now it's me, general manager, and then the people who work in the store. And that has made a giant difference in the culture because the, cult, the culture dried up the minute I put those layers in place. Yeah. Because t- typically those people don't, or at least in my case, they weren't able to articulate our company culture the same way. And without culture, you're just another company. Yeah, you know, there's this great moment in, uh, in the history of the National Press Club where people had wondered how Bobby Knight had managed all those years. And like Bobby Knight, the coach at Indiana, or don't like him, his boys never got in trouble. They all graduated. And, but one, Isaiah Thomas, who he guilted into coming back and finishing. And so he's at the National Press Club, and he said, how did you do it? Somebody asked him, how did you do it? And he, he's brought with him two props. One is the Manhattan phone book, and he said, these are the NCA rules and regulations. He drops them. There's a thud. Then he reaches into his pocket, and he has the Ten Commandments. He goes, these, these basic rules work pretty well for me. And, yeah, there you go. and I think it's that. I think it's that. Um, I, you know, I'm sorry you had to go through the, the land of vice presidents and getting rid of them, but, boy, what an important lesson for even the owner to learn. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. Let's talk, absolutely. About, let's talk about the government, and let's talk about first uh, things out there that, uh, as an entrepreneur, you wish might be different. If you were getting to talk to the next future president of the United States about what might be impediments to growth, um, what might help you and your workforce as it relates to benefits, what would you tell them? The government needs to stay out of the, the way of job creators. Uh, you know, the, the government should be, you should be looking at, if you run the United States of America as a politician, you should be looking at and saying, how do we support, enhance, and make the lives better of people creating jobs, which are business people, and people who work in those companies? How do we make their lives better? Instead, the current debate is all about how do we control, how do we put a barrier, how do we make things more difficult, how do we tax to create a giant centralized behemoth entity, which was never envisioned by our founding fathers. The fact that there's a million people that work in the executive branch I think our, our founding fathers are rolling over in our graves. Well, and imagine what we just learned from you, because I think this applies to public and private sector. The bigger stuff gets, and the more vice presidents and the more bureaucrats there are, the bigger the distance between the customer, the taxpayer, and the, right. and, and the, and the CEO. And, exactly. Uh, and so if that happened to you, Bernie, in your business, I can't imagine how you run a government with a million employees. You can't. The answer is you don't. I mean, there's... Well, thousands, tens of thousands of people working in the education of U.S. Department of Education doing what? They're not educating kids. You know, that money, if there's one thing that I think could be a possible silver lining that comes out of this election, if Trump were to win, it would be that the power goes back to the states. Uh, there's been a giant seismic shift, one flash at a time, where power shifted to the centralized bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. Yep. And if you look at what's the most efficient form of government, it's the mayor. He's not a partisan. He's not talking about gay marriage and abortion and immigration. You know what he's talking about? Hey, you have a pothole in front of your street? Yep. Crap, we've got to fix that. Yep. <laughs> I've got to get a business into town. I'm going to go to that ribbon-cutting ceremony. I'm going to go to that business owner and say, how do I make your job better? You bet. You know, we, deal, we deal with, uh, I think, 14 municipalities, and they're all fabulous because yep. it's the, they know that if I bring jobs to their city, they're going to have more money to do the things that they need to do in that town. The further you get disconnected, county, state, still close because you can make a lot of influence there. But once it goes to Washington, D.C., it's gone. It just goes into a black hole. That's crazy. You know, the central government, if you read a book called The Quartet that talks about our fo- four most important founding fathers, 
it talks about they envisioned a very, very small centralized government that basically provided for the defense of the country. Yep. And that's it. And that's it. And, and what's interesting is, you know, I was listening to David McCulloch. He was giving a talk on 1776. And towards the end, someone had said something like, hey, what do you think of what's going on in America with like those Tea Party groups and this? And it, there seems to be a lot of dissent in the country. And he goes, well, I can say this because I don't weigh in on anything that hasn't happened within the last 50 years. Historians have to wait 50 years. But our founders, I can promise you this, felt a foreign government ruling over their intimate day-to-day life, and they didn't like it, and so they revolted. And I think now the American citizens, Tea Party, not Tea Party, are feeling like there's this big foreign government, but it's in Washington, D.C., but it's still foreign. The state houses, have they can't print money. They have to hit a budget. The local mayor, oh, my goodness, he just has to get things done. And so I think that that gets to your point, and, and that leads me to this franchise uh, discussion. Um, t- what, what's going on? Uh, with this um, debate and discussion as it relates to the protection of franchise owners. And where are you uh, on this? I think the pendulum, the pendulum uh, uh, has swung too far where uh, dealers have gotten together and influenced politicians too strongly to make it so crippling for manufacturers to be able to operate their brands properly that there needs to be some equilibrium back into the system. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the laws should protect and create value for franchises, uh, but it can't be to the point where, like teachers' unions, like police unions, uh, that you can't get rid of the bad ones. Yep. I think the, when that happens and it's too far the other way, it's, it's a problem. Again, you don't want it to be completely, uh, because that, otherwise you, you lose the value as a franchisee, which the franchise or doesn't want that to happen. Of course. Uh, uh, but the pendulum is definitely swung away. I'll, I'll give you an example. If Tesla chooses to sell cars in my market on their own and they don't have dealers, God bless them. Now, I'll look at it and say, I want to be right next to that Tesla dealership because what I'm going to do is I'm going to run it as an entrepreneur and I'm going to run circles around that, that enterprise uh, because they're going to have a bunch of uh, disconnected, like we just talked about, people who have no vested interest in what happens in that market. Right. So over time, they won't succeed, but I got to prove that thesis. I, I don't want a wall to prove that thesis. Right, exactly. Right? I got to add value to the chain. So yeah. if Tesla wants to sell cars without dealerships, God bless them, do it. Yeah, my dad was a superintendent of schools, and he was always leading the charter school movement and the voucher movement. And all the, all the superintendents, why are you doing this? He goes, I want the competition. If a parent wants to leave this school, I want to give them the money and let them go somewhere else. That's that. And they thought he was crazy, but that's actually what makes for better schools, the same things that make for, well, better soap and better deodorant, for goodness sake. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so So I'm all for competition. And and so you can't you can't be for free enterprise and competition unless it affects you. Right. Right. Exactly (laughs) right. Everybody else. That's great. But not me. And, and thanks for taking that position, because too often folks are for, are, are for business, like pro-business. I don't want to be pro-business. I don't want to be anti-business. I want to be for free enterprise, and I want to be for competition, because that helps the customer in the end. Um, exactly. And that's the pro-consumer uh, advocacy that, that's best. Final thoughts for folks listening uh, who don't know anything about uh, job creation and don't know about that first day. That day you leveraged everything. Were you terrified? Were you excited? Uh, or both? I joke that there's uh, three emotions that come into play. Total and complete fear, total and complete joy, and total and complete nervousness. <laughs> and uh, you just got to get the mix right. 
and you got to live in that space and just keep marching yeah. forward. You got yeah. You got you can't uh, you, listen. You're gonna you know as uh, Shakespeare said, better to have loved and lost than never to have lost, loved at all. So better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. And 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 do you have kids, Bernie? I have four kids. And 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 I assume you you you've taught them and instilled in them the same values that uh, that your folks did. Yeah, that's what we've certainly strived to do. That absolutely. Well, I know I did hear you say you can buy any car you want with your own money. So that oh, that's the same. That sort of was the cue. Well, we appreciate you joining us, uh, Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest. Started with his own money, which was money he saved. Started with one dealership that uh, a guy named Penske couldn't get to work, and uh, he got it to work. And it started with uh, millions in sales and is now up to the, and get me if I'm right here, you said, Bernie, a billion in sales now? A billion in sales, yep. That's crazy. Uh, well, we, we look forward to visiting you when we're up in the area, and thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamer series, and it's brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network who are concerned always with the small business, becoming a bigger business, and trying to fight the impediments that are in the way of that happening. And we heard that voice of Bernie, and my goodness, you want to be on the side of these guys that can change your town, and they can change a city, a state, and my goodness... We unleash the spirit of these guys. Thou shalt have fun. Yeah, they say that in Washington. Yeah, thou shalt have fun with our money. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. 